Amen. All right, grab your Bibles. I'm going to get this dumb joke out of the way with. Turn to the Italian prophet Malachi. There you go. I have a friend, Dave Bisignano, who that is his every time this book is mentioned. He goes with that joke. And I posted this week on social media that that's where we were going. And sure enough, the first one to comment was Dave Lake. It's the Italian prophet. So Dave, if you're watching this, that one's for you. Get a new joke. All right. Malachi, you can turn there. It's the last book of the Old Testament. You might be better off starting in the New Testament and going backwards as you turn. And if you get to the weird names, you know you've gone too far. Maybe use the table of contents. We've got the QR codes up there. We're trying to make it easy on you. So try to find the book of Malachi. While you are turning there, just a quick note to our members. Members, we are going to have a members meeting on August 20th in between the first and second service. That meeting will begin at 1030 and it will end promptly at 1045. There's only one agenda item. That is to vote on the proposed changes to the bylaws of Uniontown Bible Church. So you've already received that email with the new updated bylaws. You're going to receive that again later this afternoon. You'll have a document that has all the bylaws in it. And then in addition to that, there's going to be a sample ballot for you to look at. So when you come on that Sunday morning, you know exactly what to expect, how to vote, all that good stuff. We do need to remind you Our bylaws say that you need to be present to vote. There's no absentee ballots. So if you are not in town, I'm sorry. Nothing we can do about that. Please don't send a friend dressed like you. We will catch you. We're pretty smart like that. All right. Hope you're ready. I have not preached in four weeks, unless you count last service. And that was more like just yelling for 45 minutes. So buckle up. Just kidding. Uh, Malachi, if you haven't found Malachi yet, it's okay. We love you. You'll find it eventually. Just hang on. All right. (sighs) Malachi starts like this. Let me just read the very beginning of it. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I want you, just for a moment, with your sanctified imagination... Picture yourself just sitting quietly by yourself in a room. No one's speaking to you. And you and God are just having one of your conversations. Those usually go one way, right? Uh, The more, (laughs) if it didn't always go one way, we would be freaked out if God actually was like, I'm answering, Ah!" right? You see that in scripture a lot. But imagine for a second if God spoke clearly to you in that moment. I just said your name, said, listen, I have loved you. I've loved you. What happens in your heart in that moment? What what response? Um, when, when God says that here in Malachi, he says, I have loved you. It's not a past tense. We can read that the wrong way. Well, I used to love you, but now things are a little sketchy. That's not what he's saying. It's actually the perfect tense. And what that means is it was a past activity, a past action that has ongoing results that will continue to go. I have loved you. That, that's, how, that's how Malachi starts his book to the nation of Israel. I have loved you. 
Now, just to catch you up a little bit on this nation of Israel, this thing began when God himself called a man named Abraham out of his home country and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your home and I want you to go to a place that I'm going to show you. You're just going to go. You and your wife, you're going to go. And this is what I promise to you. I promise that I'm going to make of you a great nation. Now, there's a problem, isn't there? In order to make a great nation out of the lineage of Abraham, there has to be at least one child. And Abraham and Sarah had no children at this point. But God said, I'm going to take care of that. Leave your home. Go to a place I will show you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And then as Abraham and his wife Sarah are traveling, as they continue to come into different countries and territories and places, God reiterates that promise to him a number of times. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And yet still, no children. God is going to provide a child for them in such a way that it is incredibly obvious that it was a movement and an act of God. This isn't going to be your typical, well, a man loves a woman, one thing leads to another, and it's not like that. God is waiting until Abraham and Sarah are beyond the physical capability of producing a child on their own. There is no way for them to produce a child on their own. You get this part, right? You've got to get this part. It is impossible for Sarah to have a child of her own. She overhears God speaking to Abraham and saying, next year when I come through, Sarah's going to be pregnant. And she laughs at God. Not a good thing to do. when she has that baby they commemorate this moment by naming this child laughter Isaac it's the beginning of the building of this nation this great country that God promises to Abraham to to bring through his lineage you fast forward you get into the golden era of Israel led by King David we all know and love King David and then King Solomon his son King Solomon is able to finish the temple um, with with the work of his people and he leads through that and this this glorious magnificent huge ornate building is built for the presence of God and not only does it get built and it's beautiful and it's wonderful but then the very presence of God the Shekinah glory of God descends into the temple and the presence of God is with his people in that temple and and Solomon and his countrymen are just celebrating like nothing you've ever seen before they they begin to bring offerings and sacrifices they dedicate themselves they dedicate their country they dedicate their children they're dedicating their cattle they're dedicating everything and this is for God he's here with us this is amazing and then when that's done they're like you know what we should do let's party it's a great answer all the time and you know what they do they throw one of the biggest parties ever seven day party seven days I've been to some long parties it wasn't seven days they were eating the finest food, drinking the finest wine, dancing, laughing, joking, high-fiving, low-fiving, fist-bumping, doing whatever it is that you do for seven days to have a party. And they get to the end of the seven days like, this is amazing! And when the party ends after seven days, you know what they do? Fire her back up again. Another seven days. That's when you know you're at a good party. Seven days, done. Let's do it again. And they do it again. Same exact thing. They're just overboard with excitement because this is God's presence with us. So now, seven days of party, seven days of party. They finish that second seven days. And you know what they do next? Well, they go home because the king's like, all right, enough, go home. And so the king sends them home. 
This is the high point of Israel. Because after Solomon dies and his sons take the leadership, everything begins to fall apart. The kingdom is divided. They begin pursuing other gods. They worship idols in their homes. They're living like God doesn't even exist. And prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet comes to the country and says, repent, repent, go back to God, turn back to God. He's going to judge us. Repent, repent. And they continue to call for repentance and yet nobody repents. They just continue in their way. They continue in their sin until this one day this wicked and violent people called the Babylonians invade Jerusalem, destroy the temple, they burn the city down, and they carry its people away into captivity. They remain in captivity for about 70 years, and after about 70 years, the Babylonians themselves are overthrown by a new superpower in the world called the Persians. And when the Persians come into control, the Israelites are, are, are gradually allowed to return and rebuild their city, to rebuild their wall, to rebuild their temple. And, and if you want to read the historical context in the, 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 the um, description of these days, these events, you read the books of Ezra, and Nehemiah, and Haggai, and Zephaniah, and Zechariah. And you see them doing all this activity. And so that brings us to this point in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. This, this is 100 years after they've come home. So they've been home for 100 years. And they look around. And the walls, I mean, they're sort of reconstructed almost completely, but there's still evidence of where it was torn down. The temple temple's been rebuilt, but um, Ezra chapter 3, <laughs> they've returned to their city and they're, they're rebuilding the foundation of the temple, right? And it says that all of those people who had, um, who were a little, um, the older brothers and sisters, I'm not going to assign an age because that gets me in trouble here, the more mature brothers and sisters who had been around and been able to see evidences of the previous temple, they're looking at the foundation of the temple, and what they're struck with is great sorrow. Now the whippersnappers are like, yes, the temple's back, woohoo! And it says that they're celebrating that, that towns near them could hear them shouting for joy. But the older folks who, who recognize this is so much less than what it used to be are weeping so loud that the sound of their weeping and the sound of the other people's rejoicing intermingled so much you couldn't tell the difference between the two. This is not what they expected. These people expected to come home and return to the golden age of Israel, but here they're living among, it's okay, right? I mean, this will do. They expected God's presence to be with them, but that Shekinah glory never returned. They had expectations about what the return would look like, and to be honest with you, everything they saw around them was not it. They were disappointed with their present experience. And the way they were worshiping was a reflection of their disappointment. We're going to see as we look at the book of Malachi that these people were apathetic. Their relationships were fractured. They turned their backs on God. They were doubting his goodness. They were skeptical about God's kindness. Because they were living a life of unmet 
expectations. So here God comes to them, and Malachi delivers God's message and said, listen, Israel, this is the word of God. I have loved you. And listen to how the people respond. And yet you ask, how have you loved us? I really want to be careful not to cheapen the idea of the book of Malachi and the big themes throughout, but, but as we were preparing this, there was no question. This, this, this title, Malachi, has a subtitle. It's Malachi, yes, there are dumb questions. Can you imagine asking God that question? How have you how have you loved us? Oh my goodness. What else do you need? Just pick up the Bible and start to look. God led them out of Egypt, right? Away from their, 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 their um, oppressors. He, he leads them through the wilderness. But while they were being led through the wilderness, God continued to provide for them. God provided food to show up on the ground. It fell from heaven. It was called manna. It was a miracle. And God said, I don't want my people to go hungry, so here you go. And he continued to provide for them over and over and over again. As they went through the wilderness, God protected them from their enemies. As they continued on their journey, God protected them from the enemies within the camp. He protected them from even, even themselves. They enjoyed his presence in the temple for, for years. He, he brought them home. After 70 years of being in exile, he brought them home. How could they ask this question? How have you loved us? I mean, how, how many more examples do you actually need? But before you pick up a rock and chuck it in their direction, maybe this week you ask that very question or a form of it. Maybe there was some point this week where you just lifted your head to heaven and said, God, what are you doing? Maybe... um. Maybe one night this week when you finally put your head on the pillow. God, I don't know how this is love. Maybe even as you were preparing to come this morning, the thought was going through your head. Why should I go? What has God done for me lately? This morning, the message of Malachi is the message of God to you. In your difficulties, in your trials, in your unmet expectations, in your disappointments, in your anxiety, in your heartbreak, in your broken relationships, whatever your present experience might be, whatever your context is, wherever you find yourself, hear God's voice speaking to you. God has loved you. And I know our reaction is to ask the question, how? How? Well, in his mercy, God doesn't walk away from us, but instead he answers. Let's, let's look back at verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I, I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. 
Even though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of Armies says this, well, they may build, but I'll demolish. They will be called a wicked country, and the people of the Lord is cursed forever. Your own eyes are going to see this, and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. God says, you asked me how I have loved you. Here's your answer. Is Esau Jacob's brother? Now, that's not meant to be a trick question, but it's actually a little deeper than it appears at first. Is Esau Jacob's brother? And so, so what God does is says, let me, let me answer your question by getting you to look back on your own history, Israel. Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel, he is the the, the grandson of Father Abraham. It's Abraham, Isaac, then Jacob. So, so here is this, this fella and, and his descendants of Jacob. His descendants are, are the Israelites, right? And then his twin brother Esau. Esau was the, the son of Isaac as well. And, and, and below Esau, his descendants, they're the Edomites. And that's who Malachi and God are speaking of here. And the, the, it goes back to the, these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And let me tell you, there, there is nothing There's no way for two brothers to be more different than these two boys. I mean, they are complete opposites from the very beginning of time. So so, so, uh, uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, finds out she's pregnant. And and, and, and ladies, you understand how that works. Like, I'm pregnant. And then after a few months, all of a sudden, you're like, ooh, I felt a kick. This is wonderful. And fast forward a couple of months, you're like, stop kicking me, right? I mean, that's how it works. Exactly, okay? But hers was different. Hers was like, what is happening? It wasn't just like the, ooh, ah. It was like... And so she goes to God and says, she says, God, why is this happening? Why is there such, such tension in my womb? And God says, this is going to go on for a while, I'm just telling you. Because um, you got twins. Did I tell you? You got twins? Sorry, surprise. You ever got that one? Anybody in here? Yeah, you go to the doctor, you're like, I got what? Um, you got twins. And, uh, and the older one going to serve the younger one, which that's completely out of the norm for the culture. So these, these two babies are born. And again, you can't have two children that are more different than each other. The first, imagine being the midwife. So the midwife shows up, it's time to deliver the babies. Okay, the hot towels and the water and all that good stuff. All right, here we go. Let's go. Push, push. Okay, breathe. Okay, breathe. You can do this. Now. Breathe, breathe. Okay, here it comes. Here it comes. Okay, I got it. She pulls, she pulls Esau out, and as she's pulling him out, she's like, okay, um, he's red and he's hairy. It's Elmo. No, um, it, they name him Esau, which means Harry. It's a great name. Um, and, and okay, and then as she's as she's delivering Esau, and, and you know they, they they put the baby with mom, but as she is doing this, she's like, "What is this?" And she she pulls Esau from the womb, and and there's his his little leg, and then there's his hand reaching out of the womb and holding Esau's ankle. It's like, Ugh. okay, come on, that would creep you out. Your doctor would pass out. They deliver, and here's the second one. They name him Jacob, which means, of all things, heel grabber. Very creative. Very different. While Esau was red and hairy, Jacob was smooth-skinned. Delightful. I picture him a little more prim and proper than Esau. Esau was the guy who loved to go hunt, work the farm, be outside, ride in the truck with Dad, Jacob. Jacob liked to be in the kitchen. He was a chef. He drank his wine with his pinky up. They couldn't possibly 
be any more different than each other. Their descendants couldn't possibly be any more different than each other. It says it right here. Malachi says, now listen, Israel, well, you're at home and you are rebuilding. I'm going to walk alongside you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to help you. But the Edomites, they're going to go back home after being tossed out of their country. They're like, we're going to rebuild. And it's going to be like the bully at the beach. You finally get the sandcastle up and he's like, squash, start over. And that is what happens with the Edomites. It couldn't possibly be any more different than each other. But they also couldn't possibly be any more the same. It's not like big brother, little brother. Yes, there was one older than, and one younger, but by mere seconds. It, some of you understand this. My wife understands this. She grew up in a home um, where there were four of them. Okay, it was, it was her, she was the oldest, and then there was three afterwards, and they were all like two years apart, two years apart, two years apart. And as her parents put it, they turned the page, because hey, kid, and then fast forward eight years later, surprise! And so there's an extra kid. And he would love that I was calling him the extra kid, by the way. But, um, but there's a 15-year difference between my wife and her little brother. And, and what we mock him for constantly is the fact that he grew up in a different home. Same parents. Very different circumstances, right? Some of you have little brothers and sisters. You're like, yeah, they got away with murder. Exactly. But Jacob and Esau, they grew up in the exact same household. Mom and dad going through the exact same stressful events, the, the same provisions for Christmas or for Easter, the same meals, the same, the same thing, kicks that people get on. So, so like one, one day, dad's like, get rid of the television. And all the older kids lived without a television for four years. And then they all move out of the house and the younger kids like sit at home and he's got this huge big screen TV and the older kids come home to visit and like, what? No, no, no. Jacob and Esau lived in the same home. No television for either of you. They couldn't possibly be more alike. Yet God expresses this this way. That Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I hated. Now, cultural context has to be here. Because you hear the word I hated and you bring in an emotional level, but this hatred is not an emotional expression of God. It, is doing, it has to do with the actions of God, the comparative actions of God. For example, Jesus uses the same terminology. He's saying, you know, if you want to follow me, well, then you need to hate your mom and dad. Now, what? Uh, that, we don't teach that in Sunday school. Well, well but we do because the picture, the, the cultural um, usage of that word hatred just means in comparison to I love you so very much my love for you is so over the top my commitment to you exceeds everything else so much so that every other relationship I have in comparison seems like hatred so why why did God choose to heap his affection on Jacob and his descendants and his judgment on Esau and his descendants. Oh, it's because of this. It's because Esau was a man who was driven by his inner hunger, by his stomach. His descendants were people who were wicked and vile and idol worshipers. They were immoral and violent and hateful people, and so they deserved judgment. And then, on the other side, Jacob was a swell guy. Wrong. You couldn't be any more wrong. Jacob was a deceiver. 
He was a master of manipulation. He was a liar. He dupes Esau out of his birthright with a bowl of red soup, and then he disguises himself to, 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 to trick his now blind father into giving him the blessing that Esau deserved. He was, he was a horribly deceptive man. And the descendants of Jacob aren't any better. You read through the book of Genesis and you see how Jacob's children act. And you just your mind is blown with the graciousness that God shows to that family when the people continue to fail over and over and over again. He continues to preserve the people that he has chosen even though they don't deserve his preservation, or his love. Choosing Jacob had nothing to do with any of the good that Jacob had done. He chose Jacob of his own free and sovereign grace. Had nothing to do with if he deserved it or not, simply because Jacob didn't deserve it. God's love for Jacob isn't based on Jacob's obedience. It's not based on your obedience. If God's love for us is based on our obedience, you most certainly would have good reason to doubt God's love. I'm telling you right now, God's love is always, always undeserved. So then you get into this monstrosity of a conversation that we do not have near enough time to even tickle. Um, so the question comes up, so why doesn't God just save everyone then? So let me, let me be clear. Um, this argument is the argument between two camps most often. There's other camps too, but we boil it down to two just to, to make it a little simpler. You got Calvinism and Arminianism, okay? Um, the Bible teaches this on <laughs> in regards to both of those theological stances. You ready? I'm not going to take a lot of time, so just buckle up. Be ready. It's not going to take very long. You're going to be thoroughly disappointed no matter where you stand on this. <laughs> the Bible teaches that you are responsible for your actions as a creature of God. There's no fatalism with God. The Bible teaches clearly that you are a sinner and you need a savior. And if you confess that Jesus Christ came and lived the perfect life that you couldn't live, and then died the death that you should have died, was buried and rose again three days later, and you ask him to save you, well then, based on what the Bible says, you will be saved. See, there's individual responsibility with your own sin. The Bible also teaches that before the foundation of the world, God chose some like Jacob to be his own child. We. Okay, so let me be clear. Don't ask me to explain it. I can't explain it. I don't understand it. And neither do you. And I... I I know some of you are like, bing, yes I do. Check your heart, because no you don't. Because if you explain it, that means you comprehend the full mind of God. Congratulations, you are further from God than you've ever been. If your view of God and how he saves people fits into a book or your three pound brain, that ain't the God of the Bible. His ways far, far surpass our ability to understand. His ways are far beyond our understanding. So live in the tension of it. You can't understand it completely. Study it, research it, 
Fall in love with the tension. We hate tension. That's okay. Fall in love with the tension. Enjoy the tension. Know this. This is the most important thing you can know out of this whole discussion. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, well, I just don't know if he chose me. If you call on the name of the Lord, I got news for you. He chose you. Charles Spurgeon had the greatest quote while he was preaching. He's like, Lord, I pray that you would save the chosen and that you would choose some more. Enjoy the tension. The point of this passage isn't, why doesn't God love and rescue everyone? No, stop. The point of the tension is, why does God choose to save any of us? When you come to a full understanding of the rebellion and the depravity of humankind, why would he save any of us? Because he loves us. And today what Malachi is speaking is to those of us who wrestle with being a forgetful people. Sometimes I think Satan whispers in our ears and, and says, you know, God's neglected you. God's, uh, God's forgotten you in the middle of your illness, in the middle of your problem, and this stress and this tension you're feeling and your frustration. You know, God has failed you. God's, God's letting you down. But, but I would encourage you to stop listening to the whisper of Satan and instead hear the shout of God from Mount Calvary where he declares as loud as he possibly can, I have loved you as they drove the nails into the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. God demonstrated how much he loved you that while you were a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. The very definition of love is that God sent his son. We're undeserving of his love, but it's been given to us freely. We have been chosen to be his child. And even though we, we, we are deserving of the rest of humanity to be shattered and destroyed by his wrath, just like Edom, he set his love on top of you. Jesus Christ has taken on your judgment. He has endured the wrath that you deserved. And even though, even though you fall and fall and fall and fall, his love is not going to stop because no one, can separate you from the love of God. I have loved you, is what God says. And maybe you have the question, God, how? Friend, look to the cross. His unfailing love is on display for you right there. And then today, we have the privilege of taking communion together. Just logistically speaking, let me get this out of the way with a moment. I'm going to dismiss you to receive the elements. You're going to leave your aisle to the right and come to the front of your section and get the two cups that are stacked together and return to your seat. And While we're receiving communion, I want to encourage you. This is the picture. This is the picture of God's love for you. That Jesus would willingly allow his body to be broken and his blood to be shed for you. That's what we celebrate today. So as we receive the elements, as you get them and return to your seats, uh, we're going to sing a song that's going to remind us of this love. 
And I want to encourage you where you are. If you need to sit and just pray, then, then, then man, just sit and pray and ask God to remind you of how he's loved you. If you need to, to open your, your Bible and look at the end of the book of Matthew and read through the crucifixion account to understand how Jesus loved you, then by all means, do that. If you need to just listen to the words of the song, sit and listen. If you need to stand and sing with us, then please stand and sing of the incredible love that God has shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Please come and receive your elements.
I have loved you. That's what God said. It was eternal love that purposed our salvation long before we took our first breath. It was love that moved the Father to send the Son while He demonstrated that love for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was love that called us from death into life. It was love that freed us from the slavery of sin. It's love that keeps us and sustains us until at long last our living hope is right before us. Outside of the love of God, there is no hope, there is no forgiveness, there is no way to persevere through trials, there's no joy, there's no rest, there's no comfort. It all comes down to those four words from God's mouth to your ears. I have loved you. And what you hold in your hands is a reminder of just how loved you are. That unearned, undeserved, God sent his son to be the substitute and the sacrifice for your sins and for mine. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body which is broken for you do this in remembrance of me and the same night after supper he took the cup he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me Father thank you for a love that is, is hard to express. Thank you for the broken body of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his shed blood. Thank you for the forgiveness and freedom we can have because of what he accomplished on the cross and what he defeated by coming from the tomb. Thank you for this picture of your great love. Take, eat, and drink. This is the body and the blood that was broken and shed for your sins and for mine. Would you stand and sing a song of freedom with us before we're dismissed?